I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. This series of podcasts is aimed at financial planning professionals and also those who are looking to enter the financial planning profession. We will be talking during the podcast about all things Certified Financial Planner certification related, talking to other CFPs around the world, and also we will be dropping in on some new entrants who've just entered the financial planning profession, and we'll be checking up along the way on a regular basis with them to see how they're getting on. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. And today is a special extra podcast episode. Um, and I'm talking again to my other half, or my better half, Robert Lockie from Bloomsbury Wealth. Hello, Robert. Hello. Now, we have been talking off air, or I've been grappling with a particular issue that keeps popping up in explanations in financial reports and financial plans that I've been seeing for the Level 7 CISI case study assessment. And I thought, actually, it's to do with assumptions and the the knock-on effect and impact of assumptions. Um, and so being you being the king of assumptions, widely known across the profession, uh, I thought that you're the best person to chat to about this area. Uh, well, that's uh, decent of you to say so. So we are going to talk the all about the impact of this phrase that I see in written reports, and that is that I, the financial planner, is going to err on the side of caution. So essentially, right, what does that mean? Rounding down um, investment returns, uh, all sorts of different things to make the the numbers slightly more cautious. Um, and I think a lot of people do that. Um, in fact, I'm not quite sure why a lot of people do that, but they th- th- there's this urge to make sure that clients don't run out of money, I think, isn't there? I, I think that's a, um, a, a probably a reasonable reason um, for, for, uh, for why people may do that, um, because it's obviously worse to run out of money um, before you run out of life. Um, than the other way around. And yeah. um, I think people are quite keen to avoid that. And therefore, there's a natural tendency to say, well, um, if you be more cautious, um, then that reduces the chances that you will uh, you'll run out of resources uh, before, you, before you die. So I wanted to chat through the impact of saying something like that and doing something like that, essentially rounding down in different areas on, and I wanted to talk to you about some very specific assumptions that that I, I don't know whether people actually can really understand the impact of the, of the impact on the plan and therefore on the clients by erring on the side of caution. So when we set assumptions, how do we know if our assumptions are going to be right? Uh, well, um, uh, it, hopefully it's reasonably obvious that uh, ex ante, we, we don't know that they're going to be right. Um, we can only ever tell uh, after the event. And uh, then it's a matter of um, over what period you want to consider them, uh, your assessment of whether they're going to be right or wrong. Um, so it's very different to say... Um, uh, to say whether your your assumptions are correct over a, a period of say twenty or thirty years, to whether they're correct over a period of one year, 
um, uh, it's obviously much easier um, to be correct over a longer period uh, because the um, the variation between the, um, the the return on on an asset or um, measure inflation over twenty years uh, is doesn't tend to change a great deal from from one year to the, if you look at the the rolling twenty year return it doesn't change a lot from one year to the next uh, because obviously most of those years are common to both periods um, whereas the return over one year uh, can vary a huge amount. Um, uh, between one year and the next, because there's a lot of randomness uh, involved in all of that. Yeah. Um, so it it kind of depends on. First of all, you know, you'll you you won't know that they will be right because um, we don't know the future. Um, uh, uh, but um, you can tell whether they were right um, uh, only if you if you look in the look into the past, um, and obviously. That, that is something that's, you know, you, you could make an assumption 20 years ago, look back after 20 years and say, great, that was correct. Um, and, and But really, so what? Um, because while you may have managed to get one assumption correct, it's pretty unlikely you would have got all of them correct. And even if you did get all of your assumptions correct, the, the client circumstances will have changed over that time. Um their their objectives will have changed. Uh, maybe their family circumstances will have changed, um, uh, and you have to get an awful lot right uh, in order to be correct. And if you did, um, then it would probably be down to luck uh, far more than judgment. Yeah. So yeah. trying to be right, uh, I think, is, um, uh, is is a is a flawed uh, approach. Yes. So, you know, the one thing that is certain is that we're probably not going to be right, actually, isn't it? Well, pretty well. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, if you look at the, um, you know, the Bank of England, for example, is one that I, I like to cite when, in, when, um, when considering how easy or difficult it is to make assumptions correctly about the future. Um, the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee has one of its um, targets as controlling inflation. So in order to do that, obviously, it has to make an assumption about what inflation is going to be. Uh, and they look forward uh, something like 36 months. So not a huge amount of time. Uh, and they predict what inflation is going to be. And the Bank of England has a lot of very smart people, uh, far smarter than me, um, people with um, with economics doctorates and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and they come up with their um, their assumption about what inflation is going to be. And then they adjust monetary policy accordingly. Uh, and a few years ago, um, some academics did a study of how accurately the Bank of England had managed to do this. Uh, and uh, they, 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 had a, they plotted a line for what their, their central assumption was. And then they had degrees of, um, uh, of uh, confidence either side of it. Um, and uh, unsurprisingly, like all of these charts, it kind of looks like a fan. Um, and then they plotted what the actual inflation was. Uh, over the over the period, uh, and they were just about within the ninety percent uh, range, as I recall. So they were within um, uh, a, a, a they, they were they were nowhere near the actual central case, but they were kind of quite they were they were quite a long way outside it, but just within the outer limit of their confidences. Mm. Um, and um, so I think that illustrates when you're trying they're just trying to predict one measure over a relatively short period of time with very smart people um, uh, and no doubt very good tools. Uh, and, I, and I think it just illustrates how difficult this is to do. Yeah, yeah. 
And and I guess this is the advantage of having regular reviews with a client on about assumptions, not just about assumptions, but about their entire situation, their objectives and anything that might have changed. But particularly in relation to the assumptions, then reviews can be really important. I always remember you saying that story about, um, you know, imagine that a person's trying to achieve their objective and they are walking up a hill, walking the dog and the dog's on a long lead and then and the dog's just waffling around all over the place, up and down, crossing the path. But the individual trying to achieve their objectives and that return is walking the straight path in an upward direction. Yes, follow the man, not the dog. Yes, um, follow the man, not the dog. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, the, it's it's the similarly with the you know the um, the, the concept of the uh, the drunk walking down Wall Street lurching from lamppost to lamppost, um, and um, uh, so so it's um, uh, it, it's very difficult in the short term to tell what the um, what what the, the long term trend is. You you need to look at a, a, a quite a lot of, uh, of of data points to give you any kind of reasonable clue. Um, but as I said earlier, even if you get all of your assumptions about the economic stuff correct, um, the client will show up and say, oh, by the way, I'm getting married, I'm getting divorced, I'm having another child, I'm moving to Sweden, um, any number of, uh, of possibilities um, that you weren't expecting and possibly that they weren't expecting when they when they started on their, on their plan. Mm, yes, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's actually sometimes it's the power of financial planning that opens their eyes things that they could achieve couldn't it uh, well well indeed we, you know we've had we, we've certainly had instances where where people have have come to us with with some set of plans and then something happens and they say could i do this um and um uh, and, and you 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 have a look at it and say well uh, yes it looks as though you could or um or well maybe not yet or maybe you could if you did that and they go oh wow i never even thought that was possible Mm. So yeah. yes, it's um, uh, it, it, it's the it's the fact that it gives you a framework. Um, it's kind of like financial planning generally. Really, um, if you've got a lot of complicated moving parts, um, uh, then um, it's uh, it, it's very difficult to sit there looking at a at a pile of numbers on a page uh, and trying to figure out whether you can stop work next week um, or whether you you're committed to another ten years. Um, and uh, it's it's a lot easier if you can say, well, okay, let's try to put that into some kind of picture that you can um, that you can relate to, and say, well, okay, if you spent a bit less, you wouldn't have to work again ever. Yeah. Um, if this and this and this happened, which they probably won't, but um, you know, it, it gives you a gives you a framework um, rather than, well, you know, I have no idea. Just keep working because you'll probably be all right. Yes, until you came over. Hope for the best or whatever. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Right, Let, let's talk about some specifics where relating to this airing on the side of caution. And we're going to look at talk about some specific assumptions that is common that most financial planners make um, when they're building comprehensive financial plans for their clients. So the first one I wanted to talk to you about is longevity. And I always have these difficulties with longevity. And I think partly driven by 
you know, popular software, financial planning, uh, cash flow software, that most people seem to jump ahead and just assume, irrespective of the client's state of health, that they're going to last to 100. Where in reality, you know, tell me about the ONS stats and why, you know, how that is an average and who would live longer than that. Well, the, the, the ONS stats are a, a useful starting point, I think. Um, uh, the, um, but, but what they tell you is for a population, um, uh, and it's, it's based on people who've already been born, um, uh, so it, it's not just a kind of random population, it's actual people who actually exist. Um, and and it's, it's based on a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of years of worth of data. Um, and uh, but it, it is saying for a population, if you reach a particular age, um, how long you are uh, 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 on average likely to live. Um, uh, and there are there are different cohorts for um, for males and females. And uh, I think there's also I seem to remember there was also one for um, uh, people who were sort of on average wealthier than, than uh, or who were wealthier than the average. Um, because on that, or, um, they tend to be a, uh, uh, they tend to live longer because they have better healthcare and so on. Um, so um, there is there is a there is a set of data for a population, which which is is useful um, uh, if you're um, uh, involved in the mortality business. So if you're dealing with you know a population of people applying for life insurance or um, People applying for for annuities, the opposite end of that uh, uh, that that, that um, transaction, um, then it's useful to have an idea when you're pricing your products um, uh, where the, where those prices should be. Um, but uh, when you're dealing with an individual, uh, as as we are, uh, as as planners tend to be, then um, uh, that that it's a starting point. But um, but it doesn't necessarily give you the answer, um, and I think probably the reason. Well, I you know I can't speak for why um, other people choose to do things because I'm not uh, I'm not privileged to to those um, those conversations that they have the, the process they follow. But um, you know I know how that the way the way that we came up with our um, our figure was we actually decided that we'd we'd go with. Uh, we'd go with a hundred. Um, uh, so you know, I, it's a legitimate criticism to say, well, you know, that's that's a bit um, uh, a bit finger in the air, uh, and I don't disagree with that. Um, uh, but you know, as I said earlier, we we tell our clients that we'll be that these assumptions will be wrong. Uh, and I remember somebody telling me a long time ago, well, actually, probably 15, 20 years ago. Uh, saying that um, you should use 120 because there are people who have been who who are alive today who will live to 120. Um, mm. uh, I don't know whether that's true. Uh, I do know that the the number of people who live to 120 so far uh, of the published data is zero. Um, and um, you know when people who uh, who live to 115 and 116 and that kind of thing um, when they when they crop up, they're in the news. So I kind of guess they're not that common. No, yeah. Um, and therefore, the chances of, realistically, the chances of, of your, your, your client being that guy who lives to 115 um, 
I'm, I'm happy to say that's not probably hugely likely. Uh, and when we say to people, um, you know, we use a life expectancy of 100, they, more often than not, they tend to say, there's no way I'll live that long, uh, rather than, um, I, I think that's too cautious. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think I'll, I'll live to, you know, at least 110 because all of my relatives have lived to 110. Yeah. But I think the one of the issues that people have with the uh, level seven case study and the assessment of that is setting the background of why they've used whatever age they've used for the longevity. And in some of the case studies I am familiar with, there are uh, a couple of clients who are in deteriorating health um, and blindly just plumping for 100 without thinking through, you know, we always talk about, don't we, the three steps to setting assumptions that you look back as far as you can, you say where you are today, and then you say, actually, your plan is going to be looking forward for 20, 30, 40, however many years it might be. Um, Initially, um, then you adjust accordingly. But as far as longevity goes, if you've got somebody in poor health, then and say, you know, they're a smoker, maybe they've had a heart attack, maybe they're in poor health as well at the moment, then surely that's not right just plumping for a hundred. Well yes, I think if if you if you have if there are if there are factors present which are known to have an impact life expectancy, uh, I think it's reasonable to take some account of that. Um uh, so similarly, if you know, we we ask people if their um, if their grandparents are still alive, how old they are, and um, uh, and um, I mean, uh, we don't. If someone's in their seventies, we don't tend to ask if their grandparents are still alive. Um, but but generally, you know, we'll ask if the, about their parents and and, and their grandparents, um, and if they've all lived to ninety plus, uh, then that's certainly a, a factor that that might lead us to extend it a bit. Um, and, and similarly, you know, yes, if they smoke, if they've had a heart attack at 40 um, uh, and um, they're wheezing when they come through the door and coughing up blood in the meeting room, um, then, yeah, we, we might tend to sort of scale back a little bit their, um, their, their assumption mm. uh, for, their, for their life expectancy. Uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll come across clients who actually say, that they have been given a reduced life expectancy. Yes. Um, uh, so I think it's irresponsible not to consider that. Um, uh, but then uh, it, it may be that only one of the, if it's a couple, only one of them has the reduced life expectancy. So the other one, you still have to, you have to take account of, of how long they're likely to live. Yes. Um, because, you know, realistically, that's how long the resource is going to have to last. Yeah. So let's move on to the next area. And there's kind of two areas bound together here um, that I wanted to talk to you about. And that is um, rounding down of portfolio growth rates um, combined with setting an asset allocation. So let's run through a little scenario. Um, Let's say you've got a, a modest risk investor and for the purposes of your CISI level seven case study, you have determined that modest risk investor would be a 50-50 of um, equity and debt secure investments. Um, And 
you know, you're given some assumptions by the CISI of uh, pure asset classes of equities, gilts and so forth. Um, so you come out with your 50-50, you, you work out your number, obviously after costs, and you get a percentage, let's just say for argument's sake, that it's 2.65% is your, your asset allocation, your growth rate that you're going to apply to the portfolio to see whether the objectives of that client can be achieved. So what are the downsides of erring on the side of caution in that scenario? Um, well, I guess, the, first of all, um, the, the, the thing which, um, uh, which which kind of jumps out at me first on that one is the, um, the fact that, uh, and I, th- this is completely alien to me because um, uh, when, when, I, um, when I did my exams, um, you didn't have a um, set of assumptions given to you. Um, uh, so if someone has come up with a set of assumptions that they've told you to use for uh, rates of return or various asset classes, um, you don't know how they've come up with those numbers. Uh, you don't know how cautious they were being when they derived them. You don't know what process they followed. You don't know whether it's the same process you would follow. Um, and uh, therefore, when you come to um, to doing this in the real world, rather than just in a case study, uh, you're um, you're not you you can't really say, but you can. But I I would like to defend it in court um, uh, that you um, you use the figures provided to you by some um, professional body uh, for the purposes of an examination, and because they came up with those numbers, you assume that they were correct. Um, because you really don't know how they came up with them. And frankly, um, uh, someone else's guess uh, is likely to be just as good or as bad as my guess. Um, but if you have to stand up in court and defend it, um, uh, or you have to argue it in front of uh, uh, false or whatever, then uh, I'd be a lot more confident of, if, of, of defending my numbers uh, if I knew what process I'd use to come up with them um, by you know what data I'd looked at um, and, uh, and how I'd interpreted that and uh, and how that was um, how I felt that that was reasonable uh, and how I used that process for every client and um, and therefore it was at least consistent uh, across uh, across all of all our clients and uh, I think the it, it's you're much more likely with this kind of thing to be um, uh, to be dinged for having a bad process than having bad outcome. Um, mm. So, uh, because the process is what you can control, you can't control what the market will do, but you can control how uh, how reasonably you have behaved in in trying to come up with your your assumptions. Yes. Um, so, I, I think that the, the, there there is a weakness in in the fact that someone's provided you with some numbers and you don't know how how cautious they are. Um, but if you assume that those those numbers are accurate, uh, in quotation marks, and it's just a fictitious situation, it, isn't it? It's obviously you have fictitious. To, for the yeah. case study, you have to assume that they're accurate. Uh, but yeah. obviously, in real life, as you say, you have to find a basis for your own. Yes, um, and I don't know. I mean, there's obviously some good reason for it, which I'm not privileged to. But I, uh, it, it, back in the day, you always had to come up with your own assumptions and reason them. Um, and that was always the area on training courses, which we spent the most time on, mm-hmm. um, uh, as, as people struggled to come up with, um, the, the coming up with reasoning and 
process for deriving yeah. their assumptions. But anyway, um, so I think if you've been given those numbers um, uh, and told these are the numbers to use, it kind of seems a bit counterintuitive to me to say, well, these are the numbers we've been given to use for assumptions, but we're basically not going to use them. We're going to use some other numbers because then, you know, imagine if you'd come up with the numbers and then said, okay, well, we've come up with these by a process that we think is very sound. So you've, you've got to the same point as the, as the ones you've been given, which is, you know, those numbers are, quote, correct. So having come up with those numbers which are, quote, correct, why would you then say, but we're not going to use those, we're going to use some different numbers? Yeah. Um, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, uh, and I think it would be quite hard to defend. Um, so I, I don't really know why you would do that. Um, it, it doesn't seem... Um, it doesn't seem to follow a lot of logic. Um, I've so seen I'm, it in plans hundreds of times over. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure you have. Um, and um, but that doesn't, you know, you, you'd need to ask the people who did it <laughs> rather than yeah. me why they chose to to do that because yeah. um, I can't see a, an argument for doing it really. But the the impact of changing the say the you know the two point six five that I example mm. that we were just talking about. And saying, okay, I'm going to err on the side of caution and round it down to 2.5 instead of 2.65. What is that effectively doing to the financial plan that you're creating for that client? Well, the the impact is very very easy because you're effectively changing the discount rate. Um, uh, And uh, the effect of that is that in order to get to a particular value of uh, of capital at some point in the future, uh, if you are if you're projecting that you are going to achieve a lower return between now and then, you're going to need more money at the beginning. Yeah. Um, now, clearly, if, if you're if, if you're not in a position to be able to create more money at the beginning, which most people are, they have an amount of resource now, and it's the future value that is variable. Um, then you have an amount of money now. Uh, you you vary that you reduce the return that you're expecting to achieve on that. Uh, the outcome is you have a lower value of money in the future, um, and the impact of having less money in the future is that uh, it may run out sooner, um, uh, or you may have um, you may have to, to scale back your goals uh, to to spend less um, in order not for it to run out, or a combination of those. Um, or the other one, which I think is particularly interesting and um, which kind of follows pretty logically on, um, but um, but but is is um, uh, kind of leads you off in the opposite direction of being cautious, is that um, if you want to achieve the um, uh, the higher return um, and therefore get the higher value at the end, um, you basically have to take more risk. Um, you have to, you know, because risk and return are related. You have to move up the scale a bit. Um, uh, probably have more exposure to risky assets uh, in order to get that higher expected return. Um, and there's no certainty that you will get that higher ex- expected return because it's a expected return, not a not an actual return. Um, and uh, and risk means that you might not get it. Um, but you're in order. By, as a consequence of being cautious um, in your uh, in your return assumption, you're effectively one of the options that you have to get back on track 
is uh, to take more risk, uh, which most people would consider to be the opposite of being cautious. Yes. And then that if that went to court, I mean, surely you'd be strung up, wouldn't you? Because you're uh, effectively saying you're cautious, but actually you need to take more risk to achieve what you want. Therefore, I'm going to move you up the risk scale. I think as, as one of my old colleagues once said, you're rather leading with your chin there. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's it's quite an aggressive um, approach, uh, and you, uh, if if you're up against a reasonably competent barrister, they will say, "But this is surely more risk rather than less risk," uh, and if and you kind of need to be prepared for that question because um, uh, if if the other guy's barrister is not up to the is 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 half decent, uh, that'll definitely be coming your way. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and you need to have a good argument for why why you did that. Yeah, uh, I think. And and also the the well, I think one of the other knock on effects of this situation with reducing growth rates is that you know what, what you just alluded to there that you are essentially asking clients to put their hand deeper into their pockets from now on in to achieve objectives that they thought that they could just about achieve in order because you've rounded down these growth rates. And so essentially what you're asking them to do is, well, not quite pauper themselves, but to have less money on a day-to-day basis. So they might not be able to, you know, go out for dinner as much, or they might not be able to join as many clubs as they wanted to or do as many sports as they wanted to. You know, these are the unintended consequences, aren't they, of erring on the side of caution. They are, and uh, and and that, that they may, those may be choices that they take because they are they are they are things which they can control. There's 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 not a lot which um which which the investor could control, but how much they spend and how much they save uh, and how much risk they take are are certainly um, a couple of the levers that they can pull, um, and so it's I think I think it's not necessarily wrong. For them to do that, um, but they should be doing it in the knowledge that the assumptions on which they're making uh, that are behind the the, um, the 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 data that that are causing them to come to those decisions um, are are reasonable. Uh, mm. And if you're going to say, you know, yes, well, we we scaled it back a bit because we think that. Um, we think that the future will have a lower return, then they can agree with that or disagree with it, uh, and um, and you or you can say, well, uh, and and because of that, you know, it looks like you run out of money twenty years before you're due to die or before we've assumed you're going to die. Bear in mind that we're going to be wrong about that as well. Um, then they can they they can look at that and say, I'm comfortable with that. It's a long way off. Um, or um, I'm expecting to inherit some money, or um, whatever. Um, uh, but I think it's important that you're giving them your best guess, in the knowledge that it'll be wrong, and that and they must appreciate that you're telling them that it will, all, in all likelihood, be wrong, um, so that they can make a decision uh, based on um, the best data that you have. Um, and then, obviously, you just keep reviewing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and and as you get you know further down the line, the the um, the, the things are likely to 
um, in our experience anyway, they tend to vary much less from year to year. When you've got people in their 70s, um, uh, the, uh, the viability of their plan tends to vary much less from year to year compared to if they're in their 40s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next bit and talk about the effect of erring on the side of caution when using annuity rates. Um, because if you are, I know that in our last podcast that we talked about assumptions, I think annuity rates was the one that you were saying that, you know, when we go through our three processes and look back as far as you can, say where you are today and say what you're going to be using into the future as you're planning into the future and they'll be, you know, retiring. And I, I use the term annuity rates, but I kind of mean in its widest generic term, not a pension annuity, but, you know, a, a, a facility to strip income out of uh, out of an asset. So if we take, uh, you know, an asset stripping rate in terms of a generic annuity, then if we do that and set a rate and then err on the side of caution and round it down again, then what kind of effect is that having on people as they get to retirement? Uh, well, I think if you're, it, 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 it's 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 much the same kind of effect. If you um, if you reduce the the rate at which you are going, you're planning to withdraw from an asset, uh, then um, it should all else being equal, the asset should last longer, but you're going to have less cash flow to spend. Yeah. Um, so uh, that may be acceptable. Um, uh, I guess it's it's like old Bengen with his um, uh, with his four percent rule, which um, which is, I, I mean, apart from Brinson Hood and Bebauer, must be the worst misquoted um, uh, study that's ever been done in in personal finance. Um, but uh, you know, if you said, well, instead of four percent, let's use three percent, then you, you'll yes, you'll you'll get less out every year, but in theory, your portfolio should last longer. Yes. Um, uh, the um, the the difficulty that I think that we found is um, a lot of the time when when we look at our clients, they actually they don't tend to have um, withdrawal patterns that look remotely like that um, because they've got different bits of cash flow coming in at different points, um, and uh, and some years they have some capital expenditure and other years they won't. Um, and um, so I, I can't think of anyone who takes out a consistent percentage of their portfolio every year among no. any of our clients. Yeah. Um, and and therefore this kind of um, exercise is. Um, uh, I mean, it, it might work for some people, but it's it, it I, I don't find it terribly useful for um, for in practical in practical terms for for our clients. Yeah. And I, I think the concern, the, what concerns me most about this erring on the side of caution is that if you, if you didn't err on the side of caution and the numbers are what the numbers are for all of the assumptions that you're making, and then you erred on the side of caution left, right and centre, and you compared the two financial plans with an identical starting point, but obviously the assumptions would be different, then that second plan could end up miles away from the first one and give a completely different picture and a completely different emotional response to the clients that you were presenting it to. Uh, I, I, I would agree entirely. Um, I remember uh, probably 15 years ago, uh, we had a client, we still still still, still work with him, 
Um, and he had, uh, in because he, he described himself as cautious, he had an assumption for his expenditure escalation uh, of 10% a year. Wow. And even though he had several million um, spread across assorted accounts, uh, he ran out of money at about 70, I think, something like that. It was certainly well short of our expected life expectancy for him. Uh, and it just goes to show that you, um, uh, the, you, you, you make an assumption which is, um, quote, cautious, um, and, and it can have a massive effect. He's now scaled back his, his expenditure assumption to something, to, to basically our, our, our default, um, uh, which is, um, uh, and, and his plan works a lot better um, than, uh, mm. than, it, than it did then. Um, yes. But it, it, yes, if you change, um, if you change everything, you change all of your assumptions, uh, particularly for people who are young and therefore you have a lot of compounding going on over a long period of time, um, uh, you, if you vary every assumption, even just by a little bit, uh, yeah, you'll end up with something that looks completely different. And it might be more accurate. Um, the difficulty is that you, you can't tell. Um, and who's to say that maybe you shouldn't have rounded them in the other direction? Well, and that's um, the other argument. And therefore, if you could, you know, do it both ways, you could have three sets of plans. And actually, why don't you just don't err on the side of caution and stick with what the numbers are, what the numbers are? Well, you the, 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 this kind of leads you to, well, OK, so we've got one high, one low and one middle. Well, why stop there? You You could... You could reasonably adopt an approach whereby you say, "Well, hey, let's run it a thousand times," um, uh, and um, and you end up with um, one of these kind of massive fans, mm. um, a bit like the uh, the Bank of England with their inflation measure, um, where you're predicting someone's uh, the extent to which someone's resources will last them for their lifetime. Uh, and at the top end, you've got yeah, the line is still going up. Um, you can spend all you want and you know maybe double that and be fine um and at the other end um you're um, you're kind of running out of money in a couple of years yes don't spend anything um, uh, and you show that to a client and they go right i kind of know that the future's uncertain uh and i will probably either run out of money or not run out of money um but um but i'm not really I don't really know now what I should do. No, it's not helpful, um, is it? I don't. I don't think it, it's helpful in the sense that it shows them um, that the future is uncertain. But you know, our clients kind of know that. Um, you know, I, I think by the time you've managed to get to the point when you're you're able to hire a financial planner, you probably have some um, conceptually. You're probably pretty aware that the future varies at, and. Um, uh, you know, in 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 the beginning of 2020, nobody was really predicting a global pandemic. Um, in in January of uh, of 2022, no one was predicting that uh, the Russians were going to invade uh, Ukraine. Uh, the day after they invaded Ukraine, I don't think anyone was really predicting that the Russians were going to get a kicking, and it would also be going on a year later. Um, and um, uh, and 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 the you know Ukraine was was still still there and still still functioning so mm. the future is really hard to predict and i think um i think you know people in the certainly in the last few years if they've forgotten before it's people probably now uh, should be more aware that that it's um 
it's hard to uh, to know what's going to happen and therefore um what you the, the reason that you do planning is not to tell you what is going to happen it's to give you a framework in which you can uh project possible things that you might do to see whether they might work um yeah. and whether they they might you know what what consequences they might have yes. uh and and that's really about the best that i think you get out of it yeah um because it's uh uh, it, it, the alternative is you just guess wildly and then, you know, hope for the best, think across your fingers. Um, it's, um, uh, it's it's certainly not, you know, it's not perfect, uh, but then nothing that you, you project into the future is ever going to be perfect. No. Um, and, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just it's designed to help you and, and to give you a, base, a, 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 a basis on which you can make a decision, which is exactly the same, you know, businesses yeah. have management accounts, uh, you look at the management accounts, you look at the data for you know customers and sales and all that kind of stuff, and you say, okay, I think we should do this. But you never have all the information you need because some of what you need is stuff that isn't available yet. Yes. Um, and you make a decision and you, you make the decision based on the best information you have at the time. Sometimes it's it, it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So – why do I saw something the other day where there were a number of different financial planners asking what other financial planners use for their assumptions? And why do financial planners ask what other financial planners are using in their financial plan? Uh, attempted as I am to say, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question and give the standard <laughs> interrogation response. Um <laughs> Uh, I think it's probably because um, humans generally value uh, what I believe is called social proof, um, which is why when we're thinking of buying something online, we look for reviews of it um, to see what other people said about it. Um, and uh, if we find you know, 10,000 reviews who all said this was great, then we kind of think, okay, well, that's you know, it's probably good. Uh, and if we find 10,000 reviews that say this was terrible, I'd never buy another one, well, we then we maybe don't bother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we uh, maybe we, we, we expect that the more people who are doing something um, who have chosen a particular number, the more likely that is to be accurate. Um, maybe we think the more... Um, if we're in line with what everyone else thinks, then at least if we're wrong, uh, we're not going out on a massive limb uh, and we're not going to be laughed at. And if we have to go to court, we can say, well, yes, OK, we were wrong. But look, everyone else said the same thing. Um, but but surely know. asking other financial planners what they use without doing your own rigorous research and having an investment committee that where you discuss and document how you set your assumptions and how you decide on the numbers that you you come up with. Um, surely doing something that way, even if you then get to a number which might be or might not be relatively similar to what other financial planning firms are doing, surely that's a better way of doing it because there are plenty of people out there, and we know uh, who we come across, who don't like doing the in-depth analysis of things. So this, you know, you can get a, a misconception or a, you know, a wonky number that is spread around large groups of people because they just assume that somebody else has done the digging and somebody else has done the research on it. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm not saying that you should do that approach. I'm saying that's my guess as to why people ask what other people are doing. Um, uh, there was, I remember going to a, a conference years ago where um, uh, someone put up a portfolio um, and uh, they said, this is a portfolio we constructed um, from a number of stocks and they all follow that we've used some rules to construct the portfolio. So it's um, we've we've picked the, the securities according to some specific criteria, and this is how it turned out. And it was, you know, and this is compared to the index, and it was way, way ahead of the index. And everyone thought, wow, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, I wonder if I could do that. Um, and then he said, so shall I tell you what the rules were? And the rule was that they were companies whose names began with M. Uh, and um, uh, so it had Microsoft in it. Uh, and I suspect most of the return came from Microsoft. Mm. Um, now, if you just said, uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to follow their rule um, because that's done really well and, um, uh, and, and I'm going to copy what they did and buy all those companies, um, then uh, you'd, you'd end up with a portfolio that performed very similarly. But uh, it's not necessarily that, you know, the reason that those companies went up in value wasn't necessarily because they were they began with the letter M. No. Um, there may have been other things at play. And so, it doesn't mean that they're going to go up by that well, much it absolutely in the future. Doesn't. No, and it and nothing meant nothing said that they were going to go up over the period that your your chart is shown. Um, so I think it's pretty um, it's pretty aggressive to um, uh, to 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 follow what someone else has done when you don't know why it's done that. Um, uh, I was I was talking to the other day to one of my colleagues about a product back in the nineties. Yeah, back in the nineties, I think it was. Um, uh, that um, that I, I'll I'll spare their embarrassment by by not mentioning their name. But there were a company in London who were big in the um, tax shelter um, field, uh, and they came up with a product uh, or a portfolio whereby it had five shares in it, and they were I think they were taken from the FT30 index, uh, and it was something like the ones with the highest price. Um, uh, and then they divided that price by the yield or something. Uh, and then whichever five came to the top when you sorted them, those were the five they bought. Um, okay. Now, they back-tested it, and it looked brilliant. They, uh, but they actually said, we don't know why this worked, but, hey, you know, it looks like it does, so this must be something in it. And the interesting thing was that the price – what wasn't it wasn't the price adjusted for free float or anything like that. It was literally the price. So if a, if a share was twenty pounds uh, rather than two pounds, then uh, that would affect whether it was in the five or in the other twenty five of the oh. thirty. <laughs> okay. Um, and and the value the price of a share is literally at the company's discretion. You know they can if they if their shares are priced at twenty pounds. And they say we want to have more shares. They just do a ten for one issue, and now all the shares are two pounds. Mm. It's absolutely meaningless. It's a it's a completely notional value. And what you need to know is the market cap of the business, which is you know the number of shares times the the price. Um, and um, and and people 
lapped this up. Um, we had clients who who were who were recommended to buy into it. Not fortunately, not by me. Um, uh, and, but even though the company doing it said we have no idea why this works. Uh, which for me was a massive red flag, um, uh, because if you're promoting this and you don't know why it works, then um, I'm going to guess that it's probably down to luck. Yes. Um, and you know, the, if you if you ended up with the same return assumption as somebody else due to luck, um, then uh, it's possible that next year, when you know they review theirs, they might luck out on a different number. Um, uh, whereas if you have a process whereby you say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and we do this every year, and it may be the number doesn't change, but we're going to do the same process every year until we think there's some better process that we should follow. And if when a better process comes along, we'll we'll adopt that. Um, uh, uh, but but if, if you follow a particular process and you do it every year and even though the number that comes out at the end may never change, I think you're on much safer ground than yes. copying somebody else where you don't know what the hell they did. Uh, you don't know how they got to their number. Uh, you don't even know if they're still using their number. They may be using a completely different one. Um, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, you can't call them as a witness to say, um, oh, I, yeah. This I is... use their number. <laughs> well, you you can, but 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 it might be that when – when asked where they got their number, they said, oh, we just guessed, really. Um, and actually, we don't really use it um, ourselves. Um, uh, you know, the, then you're I stuffed. don't think you're going to – it's not going to end well, is it? No, um, technically so, stuffed, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's very – I think it's quite aggressive to use numbers that someone else has come up with or use, use any data that someone else has come up with if you don't know how they've done it. Yes. Um, uh, at, at this point, I, I would actually um, bung in a plug um, uh, for um, uh, Tim Hale and Albion, um, who uh, we use for supplying some of our data, and indeed most of the firms that I rate uh, in the UK who, who do financial planning well also use them, so it's not just us. Um, and they, they actually do this donkey work in looking at this, this stuff in the background. Uh, and they produce um, very good documentation about it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think it's kind of this is not my core skill uh, and it's not ours, um, then I think it's it's definitely worth um, somebody. Yeah. buying it in from somewhere where it is their core skill. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it gives you a uh, – it, it certainly, I think, gives you a, a sounder base uh, yeah. for, for these things. So um, – very, very worthwhile in our view. The knock-on effect is for everybody out there using uh, proprietary software, cash flow software, whether it's Voyant or Truth or CashCalc or one of the many others that are available now and more being developed in the background, I'm sure, that you don't just use the ones that are built in to the systems that they come with. Uh, well, you, you can do. But surely you have to think through whether your assumptions that you're going to use, what the background assumptions, how they were calculated, all of those aspects. Well, I, I, th this is once again, it's uh, this is why I say it's the it's the process that you use to get to the number that's more important than the number. Mm. Um, because using the number that Truth or Voyant or DC or whoever came up with um, 
is 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 one thing. But you, I think it's important to distinguish between I'm using the number that they put in as a default um, because they put it in as a default compared to I'm using the number that they put in as a default because it just happened to be the same number that we came up with when we followed our process. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's similar to uh, the. I, I think they still do it. The FCA used to produce, and the FSA used to produce every few years. They've got PwC or somebody to um, to, to do a uh, a paper on um, assumptions because they use them in their projection rates, the statutory projection rates. Um, and um, you can download this from their website, and it's got the conclusions that that PwC came up with for what these various. Uh, assumptions should be, and then the FCA decides, you know, how to adjust its projection rates accordingly. Uh, and and I always recommended this reading this paper to people when when I was um, uh, doing doing training, because I said, you know, I, it, it's not because because the regulator uses these assumptions, you should use them too, because they're obviously going to mean that you know you're quote correct. Um, uh, but the the interesting part of it is the is the, the the rationale behind the numbers that they came up with. Yeah. Um, you know what data they used to get to that point, uh, because you can apply that data, you can apply that process too. Um, and if you know, because we don't get really, we don't really get trained in uh, certainly any of the exams that I've taken. Um, there was there was nothing in there about how to come up with assumptions. Um, and what data to look at, and how to how to manipulate it, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you kind of need some um, you need some guidelines, I think, for how to do it. And um, I, I found these documents quite helpful in terms of of giving you an idea of um, of how um, how you how you could go about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, if it, it may be that you disagreed, it may be that you said, for example, well. Um, I'm going to use the for inflation. I'm going to use the Bank of England's target because the Bank of England is, you know, has been tasked with keeping inflation to that that figure in the long term. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that every year inflation is going to be two and a half percent, but it, you know, over twenty or thirty years, um, that's what they're aiming for. So you can say, well, okay, we think they'll hit that, or we think they won't hit that, um, uh, but it gives you, it, it gives you a starting point. Um, mm. As as these papers written for the uh, for the regulator give you a starting point uh, and some sort of process that you can that you can attach your your own methodology to, um, and uh, and that seems to me a lot safer than saying well because our um, software provider. And software providers are obviously, you know, it's software. So the people working there will be basically software people. Mm. Um, they don't have to be economists. And, you know, economists aren't always correct. Um, uh, uh, so um, you're, I'd, I'd be much, I'm much more comfortable trusting their ability to write software, which processes the numbers that I load into it correctly than I am in their ability to come up with what those numbers should be. Yes, and the basis on what they, those numbers should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 if I, I'm willing to assume that they, by that by and large, they will process the variables that go into it correctly, 
um, uh, and um, uh, because you know that's 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 just a technical task. Uh, it's important that it's correct, but um, but it's uh, it's kind of easier than than coming up with the with the number. In well, uh, I guess it's quite easy to come up with a number. Maybe it's it's easier to do than you'll let. There's less risk involved in doing that. The risk is you get it wrong, but it's either right or it's wrong. It either does what it's supposed to do or it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Mm. Uh, with a, with an assumption, um, uh, you can have a good process and and have a bad outcome, or you can have a uh, a good process and have a good outcome. But if you have a bad process, the chances of a bad outcome are much higher. Yeah, absolutely. Robert, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, what I thought was going to be a quick natter about assumptions uh, has turned into a slightly longer natter about assumptions and the impact of them. But really valuable insights there for any financial planners um, and people, you know, looking to develop their own pieces of software and also discussions with clients as well. Um, So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much for taking the time. You're welcome. And thank you for uh, having me on. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It's really interesting, isn't it, to listen to other people's points of view about different things, all relating to our wonderful financial planning profession. If you know anyone who might be interested in listening to any of these podcasts, please pass on our details to them. So that's it from me. Join me again next time when we'll be talking all things Certified Financial Planner related and also dropping in on our new entrance to the financial planning profession. Bye for now.